What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're featuring another episode from our new strand, Intelligence Squared Business. In recent weeks, we've seen Elon Musk betting big on Bitcoin, as well as a huge new trend in the blockchain space known as NFTs, or non-fungible tokens. So, who better to have on this week's episode than Sheila Warren? She is the head of blockchain and data policy at the World Economic Forum, and she spoke to Carl Miller about how NFTs are revolutionizing the way we consume and exchange art and culture. They also spoke about some of the quieter trends in blockchain, which are reshaping the economy and how we live our lives. But before we go to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new podcast we think you'll really enjoy. It's called Climate Solutions from our partners at the European Investment Bank. What would you give up to solve the climate crisis? Well, the EIB surveyed 30,000 people in every EU country, China, the US and the UK to find out what they're ready to do to fight climate change. The team at Climate Solutions then spoke to experts about what it all means for the future of our planet. To find out more and subscribe to this podcast, visit eib.org slash podcasts or subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's go to the episode. What is it going to mean if we suddenly have an economy that is governed not by institutions, not by the historical halls of power, but by those who are creating content that is valued on axes that are not necessarily societally productive? It's just evolution. This is just how companies over the history of time evolve and grow. And those that are able to evolve and add and diversify are going to survive and those that don't won't. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Carmilla. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Sheila Warren, a member of the Executive Committee and Head of Blockchain and Data Policy at the World Economic Forum. She's also the co-host of Coindesk's Money Reimagined podcast. Sheila, very warm welcome to you. Thanks so much, Carl. Great to be here. So I'm, I'm really glad that we get to talk to you today because maybe this is a historic day. So just a, just a few hours ago, we, we got the news that, that a Christie's auction had sold its first purely digital artwork for $69 million, a non-fungible token or NFT of every day by uh, an artist known online as Beeple. Well, what's your reading of this? I mean, like, we, we hear lots of records being smashed in the world of crypto all the time. Is this, is this an important one? 
I do think it's an important one. I think it's important almost less for the massive valuation on the piece, but also uh, the way that it happened. It happened in a more familiar setting at an auction that is a known, you know, it's kind of a traditional art sale model, uh, which is really, really fascinating that we now see the connection between more traditional historical models around art and sales and the connection to digital art via the NFT model. And so I think there's been a bit of parallel structure happening in the space for some time. And that intersection, I think, is tremendously powerful. You know, I I don't I think it's important to note that I don't think that technology has made it when it, you know, invades the traditional space. But I think the recognition right by these esteemed, you know, traditional auction houses of that there is value in this art and that it is a burgeoning field in this particular case, I think it is powerful. It's a powerful accelerant. So for those listeners that might not be, say, so avid followers of the world of crypto, let's let's just bring everyone up to speed with what's been going on over the last couple of weeks. Because certainly from my kind of lay perspective, everything seems to have gone a little bit mad online <laughs> recently. Um, <laughs> That's not every let's, week let's... in crypto. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, let, let's start, Sheila, with the basics. Let, could you just take us through NFTs? You know, w- what are they? How do they work? And um, then we'll go on to what's been happening recently with them. Yeah. So NFT is an acronym. It stands for non-fungible token. And this is a blockchain-backed token that is it's unique and one of a kind, hence the term non-fungible. So it's value like that of a, a painting. The easiest analogy, I think, is is, uh, is visual art. So its value is fully contained in the token, in this digital property. So it, I think it's important to note that this is, it's very different from Bitcoin, which people are also familiar with, which is more like a dollar or a pound, right? You don't really care which one you have, you just want one. So those are fungible. Here, uh, there's not no substitution possible. You either have the thing or you don't have the thing, okay? Now, similar to Bitcoin, NFTs are part of the crypto space because they are building on the concept of digital scarcity and that you can prove ownership. You can prove there's the non-fungibility, there's the scarcity, and you can actually prove the ownership. The other thing that's fascinating is that there is a programmability aspect to this. So just like a lot of other, the other big movement that's been happening over the course of the past year in the crypto space is something called decentralized finance or DeFi. And that is applying programmability you know, to create new market opportunities in the cryptocurrency space. And so here you can do things like divide up pieces of, you know, shares of a piece of art, right? So you could own Beeple. There was one buyer from what I understand. You could have had, you know, a hundred buyers in theory, right? That all owned one one hundredth of that particular NFT. And then what you can do is create much more enhanced liquidity in the market because you can track ownership. So you can say, okay, whenever that piece of, of digital art changes hands, everybody who owns a share of it, you know, gets a portion of that second sale. And even more importantly, I would argue, this is fueling what's called the creator economy, because every time the piece changes hands, a portion of the subsequent sale goes back to the artist. So there's a royalty stream here that is very powerful. And that is familiar to people, I think, from the concept of music and music licensing. And and, and Sheila, what's the kind of history of NFT? So I think that the last time that, that many people maybe heard about them might have been in quite a different guise to today, and that was crypto kisses. That's right. So, <laughs> You know, this kind of craze which kind of, you know, swept the internet a while ago where, you know, people were kind of desperately in a strange way breeding 
digital tokens with each other to create these extremely cute looking cat avatars with certain kind of attributes. Yes. Is that, is that their route? That is their route. Uh, I will I will note that there's a crypto kitty of me called Sheila Purin, <laughs> which, which is quite adorable, I must say. Uh, someone created, and Dapper Labs created rather. And so, yeah, the crypto kitties were spawned by a, a company called Dapper Labs. And so it was kind of a, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, to the idea of cats on the internet and how cat memes are so popular on the internet. You know, uh, they. I, I think it's important to note that crypto kitties. The craze was so extreme; it was kind of like any craze you might imagine around. The collectible, right? Like something emerges, whether it's baseball cards or whether it's, you know, Pokemon or whatever it is, right? It attracted so much trading that it actually froze the entire Ethereum blockchain. Um, and that was the first time I, I, I believe that the blockchain had actually, that the trading was almost down because there was so much popularity of CryptoKitties. So yes, these root back, you know, a few years back into 2017. And this is, they've been evolving all along, you know, but there wasn't really an appetite for this kind of collectible until artists started picking this up. And so again, digital artists have been around for a while. And then when they grabbed onto NFTs, they created followings. And then this craze just absolutely erupted. And so where did it kind of come from? So so for those, for those of you that don't know, kind of online now, I don't know how you would characterize this, Sheila, but it just looks like something of a, of a, of, of a kind of uh, extraordinary singular moment where people are basically minting nfts for almost everything and and plenty of people seem to be spending an enormous amount of money on those nfts so so people's record breaking sale today isn't it doesn't really sit out there by itself does it we've got two and a half million i think for the nft sunk into jack dorsey's tweet there's nfl players creating nfts there's people creating nft gold <laughs> right Ooh. you can mint basically anything as an nft if you want to people I, my favorite is people who are minting other people's tweets which i find hilarious um but jack dorsey right jack dorsey actually minted as an nft his very first tweet when he was setting up his twitter account basically he created an nft there and that sold for multiple million dollars People wanted to kind of own that piece of, of internet history. And so you're seeing even more of that. Uh, I'm also seeing what I find fascinating, people kind of minting their family history. You know, um, uh, a friend of mine um, actually minted his uh, a record of uh, his grandfather, you know, basically coming over to um, the United States. I put that immigration record like on an NFT, which is really fascinating. So there's a lot of ways that people are creating this non-fungible, you know, impression, if you want to call it that. And and logging parts of their very important history or things that are culturally important, you know, etc. And of course, you know, it helps that we have celebrities jumping into this right and left. So, as you're watching all of this, like Sheila, was there a is there a start point? Because it seems mm, to have yeah. come almost out of nowhere. Like the technology, of course, to do all this has existed for a while. Like, what was the? How did this kind of tumble? you know, larger and larger in our field of vision from like, a, I guess, like a social perspective. Yeah, well, I want to give a lot of credit to Dapper Labs here. You know, uh, Roham and the team there, you know, they they created the, the crypto kitty concept. Again, that was meant to be kind of tongue in cheek, but it really took off. Uh, and they've been experimenting with it to think about what else might make sense. And so I do think that NBA Top Shot, which is something that also Dapper Labs launched pretty recently, really did create a massive surge of interest in this. So NBA Top Shot, for those who, you know, who don't know, it's somewhat like, imagine it like baseball cards. And so there's a moment, you know, from a basketball game, maybe it's like a, a, an amazing, you know, dunk or a pass or a whatever it is that can be captured and then minted and then sold and traded. And so the same way that people would trade 
baseball cards, these come in packs a lot of times, right? Just like a baseball card pack. People are very eager to complete their pack. They want to find the one they're missing. And this is all very familiar to people who might have ever been involved in kind of trading or collectible, right? Whether it's you want your Hummel figurines, and you want to get the last one, or it's your baseball card, and you need the last team member, or, you know, whatever it is, right? So that, I think, really catapulted awareness of this because you had uh, absolute, this was absolutely embraced by basketball players as a new way of monetizing for them, you know, their athletic ability and their prowess beyond the traditional market of their salary and, and sponsorships and things like that. And, and I think once you brought, you know, that in, uh, you had this more mainstreaming effect of it and people who maybe weren't paying attention to digital art or didn't think about that as something that was interesting to them now having this whole other domain that was really powerful and took off like a rocket. And in parallel, you know, there were artists like Beeple, uh, who's, a, I'd say, like a founder in this space, Micah Johnson, Alitha Bahuma, you know, who were all this time experimenting with art and moved. You could only really get some of their art if you use the NFT model. So they created familiarity from their side in their customer base or among their fans. And the next thing you knew, you know, everybody was like, oh, sure, I'll create an M NFT for whatever. But to your point... I mean, most of these NFTs are not actually, <laughs> they're not necessarily going to be valuable, right? They're created for other reasons. Um, I do think we're seeing a little bit of what we saw in 2017 to 2018 with the initial coin offering craze, you know, lots of money pouring into things that, eh, you know, that being said, there's no question that this is a phenomenon that there is, there is a lot of signal within the noise. And I think a lot of this is the novelty of people just kind of minting something and, and wanting to play around a bit, you know, or the FOMO of wanting to understand what this space is about. And I, I do think we'll see some of that. I wouldn't call it hype. I do think we'll see some of that activity maybe, you know, calm down a bit as people get a little bit more rational or practical about what they actually want to hold as an NFT and what doesn't really make sense. Just just before we step back and try and view what all of this means in the kind of bigger picture, one, you know, one more question about NFTs that I really would love your help with. What, what's the link? Can you help us try and understand the link between the ownership of the NFT and the ownership in a much more classical sense of either the copyright or the image or, or you know, anything that's actually linked to the thing that the NFT has been minted about? Because, of course, owning the NFT doesn't actually necessarily give you rights in a more classic sense, does it? Yeah, it's interesting, right? And there, I mean, there are definitely a lot of IP lawyers and other copyright lawyers who are really paying attention to this, you know? So I guess it depends on what the thing is. So when you think of it, because certainly anything that's digital, it's, it's, a, it's often a representation of another thing, right? So you have to kind of, there's a meta sort of thing that's happening here. That being said, you know, it's important to remember that the digital property is in and of itself self-contained. So a non-fungible token is an impression of another thing, right? Like sometimes it's an impression of another thing. And, but in and of itself, it does actually have tremendous value. So in a way, you know, there's not really, I haven't come up frankly with a great uh, way to, to explain this, people who, who are lay people in this, but, you know, think about it as like prints with a number, you know, like that's kind of a hybrid. So you've got you know, artist does a painting and then there's like 10 versions of that, 10 prints of it. And those are all that exist in the world, right? Sometimes that's kind of what an NFT is representing. Like maybe it's something that is slightly different in slightly different ways and you're holding that. But the, the fundamental painting or whatever it is remains intact, right? There's one of those and then there's kind of these impressions of it that are, that are, that are also being created. It's not quite right because an NFT is really kind of a brand new thing we've never seen before. So what becomes fascinating about it is who owns the copyright in the thing. 
And what I find really most interesting about this is on some level, the artists don't necessarily have the same vested interest in that because the programmability ensures that they get a cut every time an NFT minted off that's their minted NFT off their work is traded. The copyright concept and who actually owns the thing is a little less powerful, right? Because in the code is the concept of the revenue share. And that can't, that's immutable. That can't be changed. So if you're going to get, you know, the hundredth time your art changes hands, you're still going to get a share of that sale. You're maybe not as, you know, concerned about the copyright, the legal ownership of that. And this is what I think is so incredibly powerful NFTs. And again, you know, we're, there's a whole body of law that's now looking at this very, very carefully and figuring what does it mean and how do you assess the royalties and all this. And, you know, what is the what do you do if, you know, if something breaks down, like whatever it might be. But it's a different way of thinking about ownership and rights, particularly rights to compensation, which is really fundamentally often what copyright law is about. Right. Like it's about proving that you have rights. And if the rights are coded into the entire stream of transactions, it's interesting to think about that implications about uh, uh, on the law are about that. Has, has this phalanx of lawyers and, and everyone else has begun to look at this? Have they worked out yet who has the right to mint? So um, c- can I mint an NFT about something which I do not own? Could I mint an NFT about an image which I've just taken from yeah, the internet? So- or do I... This is where it gets fascinating, right? So this, I think the best example here is the tweets. So there was this really, I thought it was hilarious, but in retrospect, you know, it, well, it is hilarious no matter what, but it's also really challenging because uh, there are people, there are some, you know, crypto celebrities on Twitter, okay? Like they're people that have massive followings and everything they say, maybe they make funny memes or whatever it is. And other people were going in and minting NFTs of their tweets, not them, but somebody else. So that's where it gets the intersection of copyright and the NFT is really fascinating, right? Because you, you, if, you're, if you're a person who is, you know, I would say, a, I would actually morally say a good person, you know, you're going to credit the initial person with the tweet. Clearly their, their you know, uh, avatar is there. It's clearly their tweet. They created the content. You're going to make sure that that person is somehow getting credit or getting compensation, but they're not the ones that minted the NFT, so there was, is there going to be a race for people to kind of mint all their tweets because they think all their tweets are so powerful and someone else might mint their tweets? It's really complicated. So yes, you absolutely can go in and mint someone else's content. The tweet is a perfect example of this. Uh, in theory, you could kind of, it's harder to imagine how you might do this with visual art because most artists now are releasing via NFT format. But certainly, you know, if you pull down a, the way that I can pull down an image on the internet and use it as my Zoom background and no one, you know, if I don't credit it, no one knows where that came from. It's, it's, there's a similar component to this. That is where I think the ownership gets really, really powerful. And that's where I think you're ultimately going to see some lawsuits. People saying, hey, that's my content. You know, I created it. And now it's creating all this revenue for who? For somebody else? That's not fair. So um, it, there are challenges that are, that are going to emerge for sure. I mean, is this not undercutting our very basic idea of property law? Because, <laughs> I mean, basically what, what you seem to be saying, Sheila, is that people are selling things that they don't own in a strange way. Or there's this whole new layer of ownership anyway. Maybe that's a better way of looking at it. You've got, you know, is, is that essentially what's happening? People are just going around and essentially minting things that they think people would value, but which they have absolutely no claim of in any kind of classical property law sense. 
That is certainly a thing that has happened. It's happening less now because I think there's a little bit more, you know, awareness of it. And it's gone from being purely comical to being into, to being outrageous, to being somewhat <laughs> like frowned upon, you know. But it's not to say that there really is not a mechanism for them for that not happening, right? Like it, it's, it's, it's a challenge. So I do think that there's, you know, again, this is where I, you know, there are a lot of lawyers who are thinking about this day in and day out and who are assessing what does this new model mean for property rights? What does it mean for copyright? What does it mean for uh, all, all kinds of things, right? Like how did, what does it mean? Is there a different way of thinking about what we call a royalty? Does the old model work? Like all, I think there's a lot of investigation happening to that space. I suspect in short order, we will have some very clear guidance, you know, around that. I'm sure that already exists from those who are true experts on the copyright law aspects of this. But I, I think, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, humans are, you know, humans are humans. And so if there's an opportunity to make a buck off someone else's back, I mean, there are people who are going to do that any day of the week. And this is, there are opportunities in this space potentially to do that. And there has been a little bit of that, of that happening as well. Yeah. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Well, I promised that we would step back from the craze and talk about <laughs> some of the kind of bigger, bigger ideas that the NFTs may or may not kind of be exposing for us about the kind of reality of crypto and where it's going. And the kind of the first dynamic that I'd really like to get your thoughts on is I think one which is, you know, long raged, you know, when we've been talking about Bitcoin. And this is the idea of, you know, these digital assets having inherent value versus them being speculative assets. And kind of, I, I wonder, you know, beginning with NFTs, perhaps, and then and then and then looking more broadly, like what you think, they tell us about that because, you know, there's one line of interpretation here which says the money currently pouring in are people that missed out on Bitcoin the first time around. 
you know, and they are determined that they're never going to be, you know, they're never going to, they're going to get on the ground floor the next time a huge craze picks up, you know, and they're, they're basically buying that NFL players $20,000 10 second video replay that they don't own because they think it's going to go up in value for no other reason. I mean, there's such different things, right? So I just feel my, my heart kind of like leapt in my chest when you said that because they're not just not the same thing. I mean, Bitcoin is fundamentally fungible. It doesn't matter which Bitcoin you own. It's going to really matter which NFT you own, right? Because the underlying value of NFT is tied to the content. So mm. an NF, you know, an NFL or NBA moment that is, you know, that, that makes the historical record is the kind of thing that you talk about and get cited in movies as a, you know, a, 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 mo- a moment that everybody remembers, you know, is, is a very different value than, you know, my kid catching a ball in the backyard, right? I mean, those are very extreme examples, but you take my point. The, there is a, there is a, a market there that is, it, it is to a larger extent about the content within the NFT. So just owning an NFT is not the same thing as owning a Bitcoin. Like those are just not the same thing. And so I, I, I just want to ground that and make it very clear. That is the fundamental difference between non-fungibility and, and then fungibility, right? But I think the other point that you're, you're getting at is, you know, Bitcoin specifically, right? So is its value inherent to it or is its value speculative? You know, and, and one thing I'll just say about that is, you know, I've never believed that speculation is a use case. And so I fundamentally think that one of the less interesting things about Bitcoin is its price. I'm not sneezing at anyone making money. I mean, go forth, prosper, et cetera. But, you know, I actually think that what makes Bitcoin powerful is in part the technology, it's the protocol, it's the governance around it, you know, it's these kinds of things. And it's the alternative that it presented to the traditional banking system. Uh, which which remains an extraordinarily powerful idea. So um, they're just such different things. And, and it, it again, it, it causes me palpitations to imagine that people think that, you know, by getting in the NFT market, you're going to make up for how you didn't get into Bitcoin because it's just it's just not the same thing. And I mean, I think we're seeing that already, right? Like not everything is going for $65 million, you know? Like most NFTs are selling for, you know, 100 bucks, maybe like maybe under that even. Like it just kind of depends or nothing. There are many NFTs that no one ever buys, by the way, to be very clear, you know, because uh, they're just not they're just not great, you know. So it's already a market. The challenge I see with it is it's already a market where there's such a high barrier to, you know, ownership of what is currently seen as very valuable. And it remains to be seen what artists and other musicians or whoever it is, athletes, you know, whatever, will emerge that will create that same kind of value for holders of their of their tokens. So mm. it kind of makes me a little sad to think that people are doing that. <laughs> you know, all I'm going to say just is I, I don't give investment advice, but, you know, I just think it's important to to just, you know, always exercise common sense and caution when you're engaging in, in any market, you know, and think about. Uh, your think about your upside, think about your downside, think about what you can afford to lose, you know, and if there, but if there's something out there that is really meaningful to you, you know, if there's a, a piece of digital art or there's an athletic moment or whatever that's interesting and meaningful and, and precious to you, you know, by all means, you know, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to, to have a piece of that. And it's something that I find extraordinarily powerful, both on the creator side and the collector side. Extremely, extremely sage advice. Thank you, Sheila. I, th- I mean, I, I think the point I was driving at really was about the social construction of value and that whether it's a fungible or, or, or non-fungible token, you, you, kind of crypto assets in one way or another seem to be kind of exposing 
a kind of massive uncertainty that we currently have around what is valuable and what isn't. And that, you know, that we, we seem to be in in a kind of phase, really, of, of really as a civilization trying to work that out. And all the volatility and, and, and big money and small money and worthlessness and fortunes that, that seem to be swirling around in this world more than perhaps anywhere else, really, right now, all seem to be testament to the idea that value seems to be kind of less and less certain in a strange way than it than, than perhaps in the past? Yeah, you know, yes and no, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, you know, what what is the value of a dollar based on? It's not that the piece of paper is worth that much, you know? It's it's the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. That's what that represents. Yes. And that goes up and down too, you know? So it goes up and down because of inflationary stimulus. It goes up and down because of political prowess, you know, it, it, uh, political power, perceived political power. There's a lot of reasons why value is divorced from the good itself. Uh, I think this is exactly the point of money. So I would argue, you know, yes and no. You know, I, I think that we, we maybe we haven't been as aware in the past of the fact that a lot of what we call value is inherently speculative or, or prone to, to more volatility than we like to focus on, you know, because it doesn't make us comfortable. It doesn't make us sleep well at night. Uh, but if you lived in a hyperinflationary economy, believe me, this would not be new news. This would be a very familiar story. And you would almost, and I think people in places like you know Argentina or Venezuela are kind of laughing a little bit, you know, at, at people in other parts of the of the world saying, "Well, you know, welcome to our lives. Like this is what it looks like." So, right. yeah, I, I don't think that I necessarily agree with that. I just think there's more awareness or understanding of that reality. Okay, all right. Well, let, let's move away from assets and, <laughs> and talk more about infrastructure. So I, I'm I'm keen to know Sheila, like where you think the Ethereum applications on the Ethereum blockchain are going next. I, I remember the the famous case of the DAO, the Digital Autonomous Organization, which our read, uh, listeners might, might might remember, where they tried to bake literally, basically, a company onto the blockchain and all of its articles, associations, and so on, as in as a huge Ethereum smart contract. Um, are, are we seeing more kind of experimentation around, you know, actually? organizational architecture going onto the blockchain? Yeah, quite a bit. I mean, I think that governance is one of the most interesting and exciting spaces, you know, for for, block, for the Ethereum blockchain specifically, but for blockchain in general, I think, uh, and I include, you know, Polkadot, Cosmos, like others as well, you know, that are that are out there. I think that, you know, the DAO hasn't, hasn't gone away. I mean, it's just a little, it's a little quieter now, but there are a lot of experiments with how you create decentralized governance meaningfully. How do you create a more, you know, I'm going to use a term that doesn't port fully well over, but how do you create a more democratic representative, you know, system? Liquid democracy is super exciting. Like the idea that you can actually vote, you know, using a, a blockchain and not just to vote to secure your vote, it's kind of like the known you know, model, but that you can actually weight your vote, you know, based on um, holdings or stake. You can actually use stake to kind of prove what you care about and then, you know, vote accordingly, right? So you can weight votes in ways that are really powerful. Uh, we're seeing some of these experiments with ranked choice voting or things like that as well, you know, in the more formal voting system, for example. But you can imagine that moving onto a blockchain and being even more instant and powerful and, and, and you know, the exponential growth around around those ideas. So that stuff is interesting. I also think there's a, there's a tremendous amount of interest in, um, in, in disrupting social media platforms for uh, many different reasons. Data ownership, who actually owns data? Should it be owned by the, and this is going back to our research, should it be owned by the people that created it? Should it be owned by a platform? Should should it be portable? Should it be, you know, trapped? You know, all these things I think are open conversations we're having in society and blockchain governance is poised to really, 
I don't know, fully solve, but certainly address a lot of them in new and novel ways. And the DAO is one example of that, but there are other examples as well. So I think there's tremendous activity going on a little more quietly. You know, it's not getting the attention because of the other things we've talked about, um, but it, but it's going to, there's going to be a time, right? When that, that also kind of blows up and emerges and everyone's like, oh, where have you been all this time? You know, well, we've been working, you know? So that, that, yeah. that I think that work is in like build mode. People are heads down, you know, quietly kind of building, but we're, it's still very active, very, very active discussions. And how, you know, how profound might the disruption be in this whole new area? So so if, if we get a, a series of services, say, that step in, that look like Facebook, feel like Facebook, but are run actually by a decentralized network where there is no, you know, the pipes aren't all pointing into a single place yeah. and which can offer their users, you know, tangibly or even financially some kind of strong incentive to use it. You know, how, I mean, surely that, that stands to, to possibly be far more disruptive than, you know, antitrust legislation or governmental action or regulation or all, all the places of, that we typically are looking at at the moment when it comes to how the digital terrain is going to be changed. Well, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that we need both. <laughs> I think we do need regulators, you know, coming from the top down to kind of hold platforms accountable, et cetera. But I think this is a revolution from the bottom up. You know, we talk a lot about digital nativity. So, you know, we, anybody who's, you know, Gen Z or earlier is digital native. They just have a certain expectation about things. They're very familiar with their device glued to their phone, whatever it might be. Uh, we're going to have a generation that's very, you know, AR familiar. That's going to be natural and normal to them as AR takes off. We're going to have a crypto nativity where people just expect their assumption is that they own everything that they create. That's just a default assumption that it's not trapped anywhere by anybody, that there's extraction and portability is just kind of taken for granted, that your digital twin is a part of your identity in a way that is really not so much, you know, yet there's an element of that that's symbiotic, but it's going to be very, I think, much more married and wedded together. I think about my children, they're going to have a very different experience around, they're going to be shocked that anybody like me ever, ever was willing to give my content to any centralized platform. It'll just be absolutely, like, how crazy could you possibly have been? It's the way that I'm like, oh my God, you didn't have email? You know, that kind of thing. You're going to have a similar concept of that. And so I think it's very powerful. Um, but again, I think it's the kind of thing that's going to become so normal so quickly you know, so the disruption is going to be, there'll be a moment when it's very disruptive, when people are like, oh, these old models aren't really working. It'll be very disruptive to certain big tech, I think. Uh, but then you'll kind of like blip through that and then it'll just be the normal way of doing business. And people will be like, well, of course I own my content. Of course I can go wherever I want. Of course, you know, uh, uh, interfaces competing with competing for my attention based on brand new criteria, brand new things that we don't really know what they are yet. You know, maybe it's the ease of transfer, maybe it's the backgrounds. I have no idea. Maybe it's the way you can mess with your stuff. You know, I, I have no idea what it might be. I suspect there's going to be an AR component to it uh, that'll that'll become very powerful and there'll be competition on that axis. But, you know, I couldn't possibly say. There, these are things that we, I don't even know if anyone's imagined them yet. How do you, how do you imagine that the kind of collision, if it is a collision between crypto and big tech, is is going to go i mean do, do, do you see these kind of competing companies with entirely different business models and technical infrastructures basically rising to start taking chunks out of facebook and google's market shares do you think they they're amenable to kind of in a way being co-opted and, and almost like reforming yeah, big tech you know, from the yeah. inside like yeah, I don't think of it that way. You know, I think that there's going to be a generation that is pretty locked into these platforms. The platforms will continue to cater to that generation. And then that generation, you know, many years from now will not exist anymore. Right. But I don't see 
I, I don't necessarily see people, you know, in their 40s, 50s, you know, whatever, suddenly jumping over to a new platform unless that's extraordinarily, unless you can port your community. Because at the end of the day, people are on these platforms because their friends are on their platforms and their families are on the platforms. Right? I mean, it's just that's why this whole uh, comedy for me around like WhatsApp to Signal, you know. Did everyone really go to Signal? Are they still on WhatsApp? Are they honest about it? You know, it all depends on who moved with you. You know, you're like, I'm going to be where my people are. And at the end of the day, I'll sacrifice X, Y, Z because I want to be where my people are, particularly during a pandemic. I want access to my folks, you know, whoever they are. So, but I think that the next generation of, of, uh, of users um, are not going to join. And they already aren't. We're already seeing that Facebook is skewed much older generationally, right, than TikTok or others. And so I think these new ones are going to attract a new audience and then slowly, gradually over time, you know, maybe take over. I also think you're already seeing, you know, Google Alphabet, right? There's this massive... What's we're looking for? There's a massive, they're just rethinking a lot of their businesses. They're adding other kinds of businesses. You know, they are, they're not focusing, you know, just exclusively on kind of the one thing. So Facebook just recently, the article came out about, you know, Oculus and, and VR and all that stuff, which is, I mean, is that going to come to the Facebook platform? Probably, but is it core? I don't, I don't really know. Google has Alphabet. They bought Nest. So there's just a lot of other, you know, well, Alphabet now has Google and it has Nest. So if Google's value goes like this, you know, Nest's value, because I mean, who knows? There's all kinds of ways of diversifying the portfolios of these companies. And I think you're going to see more of maybe the Google Alphabet type of structure where they're owning other companies as independent business lines and, you know, in that way, right? There's a typical business morphing and this kind of thing. So I don't really see it that way. I think that there's just going to be but demand for these new models from people that are familiar with them and then new things will emerge. You know, will they become the next unicorns? Probably, you know, does that mean it, this is, but again, it's evolution, you know, like it's just evolution. This is just how companies over the history of time evolve and grow. And those that are able to evolve and add and diversify and add in other kinds of things are going to be, are going to survive. And those that don't, won't. But to your other point, your other question are, how are they going to engage with crypto? We're already seeing this, you know, so you've got I mean, now it's, it was, it was, what was it? It was Libra and Calibra and now it's Diem and Novi, you know, but there was that, you know, I'm confident that all the other tech companies, and I forget what's in the press or not, so I won't name any names, but I'm confident all the other big tech companies are very actively exploring this, but it's similar to how you're seeing, you know, MasterCard and PayPal and Visa all have crypto divisions, you know, so they're all integrating it the way that they can, that makes sense for their model. Some are more innovative than others. Some are more cutting edge than others. Some are just kind of accepting it into their, you know, into their payment systems, whatever it might be, but they're all aware of it. It's, it's integrated. There's product being built around it, but that product is still fundamentally centralized. And that's the thing that I think is not gonna be attractive or make sense to a whole new generation of users so Sheila, to, to kind of bring us full circle is it kind of right to say then that the nfts whilst not being a distraction are kind of taking up a kind of a lot of the froth and heat and visibility whereas actually there is a much quieter kind of rumbling perhaps much more profoundly revolutionary thing happening underneath it all you know, Carl, I don't know that I would have thought of it that way, but I, yeah, I do kind of think that's what's happening. And and so again, I want to be clear, but I think there's a tremendous amount of signal in the NFT noise. There's also a lot of noise, which I think is extraordinarily obvious to anyone who pays the slightest bit of attention, you know, and I do think that they're very symbiotic. So it's not that NFTs are distinct from the crypto, they're part of the crypto ecosystem, right? And they are providing, I think, very important entry to the users I'm talking about. This, they may well be the entry point of these new users who are largely younger people, you know, who, we had someone on our podcast actually who said, I would never buy traditional art. I would never have put a picture on my wall, a painting on my wall, 
But digital art, I'm absolutely passionate about because I can display it as my avatar. I can put it on my, you know, my whatever platform I'm using. I can kind of like have it show up in different places in the world. It could be my background, whatever it is, right? Like I, I can engage with that in a very visceral way that's important to me, you know? And so I think that that is going to be an entry point for many to onboard them into the crypto ecosystem. So I don't want to dismiss the power of that. But I agree with you. I think that that it portends almost this really fundamental revolution that, you know, I have personally thought was coming for quite some time. Uh, the issue I took with the kind of crypto, crypto enthusiasts, if you will, was the timing on how long it was going to take. You know, there was like this idea, like a year from now, no more banks. And I was like, that is the, that's not, no, no. you know, like that's not a thing, you know, 20 years from now, you know, yeah, maybe, right? Like, but, but uh, incumbents and inertia and generational issues are very profound. And I, I come back every time that the counterpoint I always use to crypto enthusiasts is to say, you know, how long it took me to get my parents to use an ATM? Do you have any idea how long that took? And I personally had to go in and convince them to do it. There was no, there was no incentive otherwise. It would have taken them a good 10 years longer probably to actually do that if I hadn't like brought them along. And like, is everyone doing that? I don't know. So this idea that we're suddenly going to bend the entire economy towards the needs of a younger generation, ultimately, 100%, of course, we're going to do that. But like right away, that's not going to happen. So that's kind of where I, where I think it, uh, some of the, the froth you know, comes from. And actually, the final question, but it's, mm. it's a bit of a difficult one, slightly conceptual. So, um, as you know, if, if if we do see then this kind of tectonic kind of replacement or rise of of a of a new crypto economy with with its new unicorns and and leaders and heroes and villains and language and everything else, a kind of generational shift. What's your sense of the kind of tapestry of power that emerges with that? So. You know, what do the new concentrations look like and what do the new decentralizations look like in this in this brave new world? And that's that is the question, isn't it, Carl? You know, and so there are definitely downsides to having a much more a much more liquid democracy is, you know, kind of the, the term du jour, right? There are definite downsides to that. I think here in the States, you know, we are a representative democracy. We are not a fully participatory, excuse me, democracy. There are advantages to that, that we, I think a lot of people like to pretend don't exist. And there are definitely, you know, it gives you someone to complain about for if nothing else, right? So what is it going to mean if we suddenly have an economy that is governed more, not by institutions, you know, but not by the historical halls of power, uh, but by those who are creating, let's say, let's just for the sake of argument, the creative economy, creating content that is valued on axes that are not necessarily societally productive. Because let's be clear about what this means, right? You could very much have a world in which something that is not slightly beneficial, has no altruistic component to it, has no humanitarian component to it, becomes extraordinarily powerful because it attracts you know, market share for whatever random reason that, you know, whatever it might be. Where then do we locate, you know, the necessary public goods, the necessary public infrastructure, the things that the commons, like what happens to the commons in this world? Uh, it is a really, it's a powerful question. It's a troubling question. It's a question I spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about because that's part of my job, I think, is less about like who's making money and how it's not really my job. My job is like, what does this mean? What is this going to mean? 
there are not great answers to it. Part of why I'm tracking governance so carefully is because I do think there needs to be something in the system that acknowledges that the things that no one feels accountable for, nobody will do if there's no responsibility to do them. And those are the things that historically government has done, right? Increasing over time, privatization, private you know, actors have done that at the behest of the government, right? And so I think that's what becomes really powerful. And I see this ultimate world where I do think that you know private institutions simultaneously have more power and less power, right? They have less power over like customers. I think that model transitions more to users who are stakeholders in their systems. So the power is more distributed, more failure. I think that is probably in general a good thing. Uh, But I also think that there is this world in which uh, institutions have more power because perhaps they're taking more cue from their users and away from government. And what the responsibility then is, how our society, you know, continues to function, um, or not, depending on where you are, let's be really real, you know, I, I think is a is a very, very powerful question. Now, all that being said, I think we've seen over time again and again and again and again, this is not the first time there's been some sort of revolution in the history of mankind, right? There is always this resistance and inertia that I think keeps things on the rails, whether for good or ill. And so I don't foresee this sort of like um, Mr. Robot type, you know, like everything just kind of collapsing. I don't see that. I don't think that's something we need to worry about. But I do think we have to be really paying a lot of attention to the global commons now more than ever uh, and ensuring that there is a lot of motivation in the systems to make sure that their management, their upkeep, their maintenance is part of inherently part of the system. So to that end, you know, I think things like ESG, we're positing actually should there be ESTG, right, where you evaluate technology and its implications very specifically and the the technical choices you're making, like, should that be part of these systems so that we don't lose, you know, wind up in this dystopia where there's nobody responsible for the things like air and water and the roads, things that we all need. That's really interesting. So, and I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna add this on to the, the my final question. So, <laughs> a lot of people, I suppose, like kind of almost instinctively, kind of like feel decentralization is a word which is kind of empowering and good because it kind of breaks apart concentrations of power and it you know allows networks to 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 kind of like self police and you know it kind of prevents you know it gets really undermines hierarchies, but kind of. What I'm hearing from you there is that that actually kind of accountability and responsibility, at least as they currently operate, often require kind of centralizations in order to work, as in governments or other kind of, you know, concentrations of power, which we then kind of wrap responsibility and accountability around. So if if I'm right, if I am right in in, in interpreting what you said then correctly, does, does that mean that basically we have either two options? Either we kind of, you know kind of create a box that crypto works within that actually leaves that basic structure of governance unchanged or it's actually in you know decentralizing accountability and responsibility just as furiously so i don't believe in the concept of a box that you can put crypto in and it just kind of sits in that box and that there's any kind of non-porous boundary right so uh, at the forum, we have this whole initiative. It's called Strategic Intelligence, and its whole point is to contextualize things, right? So it points out like this relates to that, relates to this, and then we create these maps that kind of show. I really believe in that model. I think it's very powerful. The images are very powerful when you go in and play with those tools. So, but they they've really reinforced my belief that there is no such thing as a box. It doesn't exist. You know what changes here is going to butterfly effect. Let's put it that way for shorthand. Um, so so I'll, I'll just kind of like answer that part of the question with that. I don't think that's a thing. So mm-hmm. decentralization mm-hmm. is going to have dramatic effects, more or less dramatic, right? Depending on on uh, 
how happy I think users, customers are with services, right? So some of this, right, there, it, there's, a, there's an element of, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it with some of this stuff. And there are some things where people are generally satisfied with how things are going. I couldn't possibly posit what those are because they're very different, you know, jurisdiction to jurisdiction or place to place or company to company. But there are things where people are like, yeah, that's fine. I don't really feel like that's something I need to mess with. And I don't think those things are going to be prone to massive disruption by the wave of you know, centralization that kind of comes over. I don't think it's inevitable. I think if there are things that are working that you know, people feel empowered or whatever it might be, yeah, they might survive you know, sort of this, you know, this change, and, and in fact, quite easily. But I do think that it's about, well, let me put it this way, there's, there, there's been a couple of sort of historical, very significant moments in corporate governance that have kind of changed the way that you know, businesses operate, right? You could think about, you can go, you know, Glass-Steagall, you know, sorry, Zoxley, and some of these things, right? There have been, in the United States, there have been some regulations that have come down that have just fundamentally changed the way, you know, Citizens United, that case, right, and the engagement of business politics. There are a couple of these mm-hmm. flagship watershed moments. And again, they're all over the world, and, you know, everybody know, kind of knows them. There is probably going to be actually some sort of, you know, court case or regulation or something like that that embeds aspects of decentralization into systems, because that's fought for or whatever. Uh, and other things that maybe are not allowed to flourish or thrive as much as maybe they should. But whatever. that is coming. There will be that moment. We'll all look back and be like, that was the moment. That was the time when we were able to do this versus that, right? And I do think that that's going to fundamentally disrupt a lot of the ways of, of doing business or engaging in services or whatever it might be. At the same time, you know, I think that at the end of the day, and this is going to sound terrible, but I think that humans are lazier than we like to give ourselves credit for being. And so just because you have the ability in a centralized system to be a much more active stakeholder or whatever, it doesn't mean you're going to necessarily do that. And so I, I think I tend to fall back on, you know, people who care a lot about you know, governance and systems are going to have more of an opportunity, whereas those who just really don't care are hopefully, you know, not going to get lost or not going to necessarily have to do all of that much. Because I think that, you know, we've seen this, right? Like the notice and consent world is a great example of this. You know, like how many of us go in and just dismiss the notices and don't bother changing our cookies or whatever, because we're like, "Ah, I can't be bothered. I got to get in it. I got to need the convenience of it, right? That's most people. Let's be honest, you know? So so I think that we're fundamentally going to fall back on at the end of the day, these systems are organized in some fashion around human beings and human beings are quirky and weird and lazy and motivated by strange things at times, you know, and can be selfish. All of those characteristics are going to show up in some of this stuff. And I just think that's important fundamentally to recognize, you know, humans are a phenomenal species, but we're also a bit of a hot mess. And so that's going to be reflected in this and we're going to act accordingly. And and where that goes, I mean, you know, hey, I, I'm I'm here for the ride. That's that's what I got. <laughs> I'm here to observe it all and try to try to influence as I can. <laughs> well, on that um, civilizational hotness, Sheila Warren, thank you so much. What a fascinating discussion. Thanks too for listening, everyone. Uh, I'm Carmilla, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.